This morning, as we look to God's Word before coming to the Lord's table, I'm looking at the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We like to keep Scripture in its true context, and if I was truly dealing with the passage, the short passage I'm looking at this morning in its wider context, I would read verses 1 through 22, which is a discussion of, with Paul saying to the people of Corinth that it's quite possible to nominally belong to the people of God, the church, or to Israel, and yet not really belong. And he cites the way in which the Israelites in the past were all under the same leadership of Moses and ate the manna together and did the rituals together, the sacrifices, and so on, but some of them really were not Israelites of faith who belonged to the Lord that they professed to worship. Now, as a subunit within this larger passage, I'm just going to read verses 14 through 17, where the apostle zeroes in on something very down-to-earth for this Corinthian church, which is the Lord's table. And this, of course, I would hope has meaning for us. Listen as I read 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 17. The apostle says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, so judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. These are fitting words for us on a communion Sunday. I would have you recognize today that the Lord's Supper is many different things to different people depending on their understanding and their knowledge of the Word of God. There are those who participate in it as members of the church, perhaps even for many years, who come to the Lord's table with, I believe, a high degree of superstition. Although we as Protestants believe that the doctrine that says these elements are literally changed into the body and blood of Christ, as some portions of the Christian church declare, is not a biblical doctrine. And therefore, we do not have that superstitious idea that we are actually and literally handling Christ in these elements. Nevertheless, I find that Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and all kinds of folks have their own level of, shall we call it mysticism or magic, in their minds when they approach this table of the Lord. I find that overall and across the years, a a pattern can be observed that attendance at worship on communion Sundays is always a little higher than any other time. It seems like this is a day when folks know communion is coming, at least, that maybe on a Sunday where there would be a fairly trivial reason or a nagging illness that they'd say, oh, well, stay home today. They'd say, oh, today's communion. I need to be there. And when I hear that kind of thinking, I've talked to people about it sometimes, and I, I, I wonder what it is that exactly heightens their sense of need to be at worship on a communion Sunday over any other time. I won't say this is always true, but I have heard people 
talk about the Lord's table almost as if they viewed it as a time of receiving a sort of mysterious spiritual potion or medicine that somehow is going to absolve their sins and from it they expect what I would call an emotional power surge for their lagging walk with Christ. That tinges on pretty big superstition and mysticism. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the next chapter beyond what I read, is the chapter that really tells us the most about the Lord's Supper. I think you may know that the latter half of 1 Corinthians 11 (coughs) tells us about the institution of the Supper and reprimands these Corinthians and how they were abusing it selfishly and carelessly. But here, where Paul's subject has been on a larger issue, but he zeroes in for a moment in verses 14 to 17 on the Lord's Supper. He gives us another thought that I want to put before you today, some clear definitions about what communion ought to be, what it means to eat this bread and drink this cup. For here, we understand Paul to be saying that when Christians do this properly, it is, in his words, quote, a participation a participation in the body and the blood of Christ. We call it communion. If you break that down into its root words, it simply means union with. Union with what? Another person. Union with the person of God in Jesus Christ. And as this passage develops it, union with every other human being who belongs to God through Jesus Christ. So there's two points I just want to see quite simply this morning. How we are participating with or united with Christ and how we are in union with everyone else who belongs to Christ as we celebrate this supper. First of all, I believe this passage teaches us that real communion with Christ is the very foundation of the Lord's Supper. It's not a ritual. It's not magic. It's not superstitious hocus-pocus. It's an act of obedience to something Jesus himself established for us and commanded us to do in which we simply are revived in (coughs) and remembering in a solid way the fact of our unity to him. And if we are not united to him before we come to this table, then it becomes an empty ritual. For it is and means communion, union with someone who is already known to us. I think of an illustration, at least on a human level. A few weeks ago, our family was on vacation. We were up in the Pocono Mountains, uh, about uh, a little more than 100 miles north of here. And in an area near Stroudsburg, uh, we don't know anybody in Stroudsburg and don't expect when we go into a Wendy's restaurant for lunch to meet anybody who we know. And we went in this restaurant, several of us, and there was a long line. You know how they snake you through the, the posts to get to the cashier to give your order. So we were at the back of the line and we were looking at the backs of people's heads and suddenly we realized that about 10 people in front of us was somebody we absolutely know very well, a member of this church, a young man who was there with his fiancée. 
And in a few minutes, he turned around, and we spoke and, and had a, a healthy little gab fest in the midst of the Wendy's line with all the strangers around us. It was a great thing to see somebody you know in a place where you're a stranger, you don't expect to see anybody or have a, a relationship to anybody. But we had communion with this young man and his fiancée based on an established pre-existing relationship with him. We had shared bonds of association that were absolutely unique to him that didn't exist between us and any other stranger in that restaurant or, far, as far as I know, in that town. Now, when Paul states here in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen that our experience at the Lord's table is meant to be, quote, a participation in the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, he's drawing upon and illustrating here a very rich and broad biblical doctrine that fills the New Testament, the doctrine of the Christian's union with Christ. Union with Christ is a very important theme in the New Testament. For we learn that our salvation in Christ makes us supernaturally united to Him by grace through faith. And that is something that occurs before a believer comes to this table. And so assuming that we do know Him, that we have trusted in Him, that we have recognized our sin, bowed before Him, called Him our Lord and our eternal hope, we come to this table, you see, with a pre-existing bond. And it's a little bit like meeting that young man in the restaurant. It's not, oh, how do you do? My name is. We don't need to be introduced. We know one another. And there's a rejoicing and a fellowship that we can plunge right into that previously exists. <coughs> there are so many passages that would tell us <coughs> excuse me, in Scripture about this union we have. John chapter 1 says that as many as received Christ, to them he gave power to become children of God. You aren't children of God by nature just by being born in this world. You become a child of God by a relationship of faith through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past, and new things are coming to him. A whole new relationship, something that did not previously exist. You have been bonded to God as you have come to Christ. And it, it is, we find as we go through the New Testament, it is a transformational relationship. It doesn't leave you the same as it found you. You are being bonded to Christ. Paul used that code phrase so often for saying people were simply in Christ. You know, he had a lot of meaning packed into those two little words. To be in Christ means to belong to him, to trust in him, to call him Lord, and to have this new relationship, this union working in you, this attachment that is indissoluble, that cannot be broken, that Christ actually takes up an invisible but spiritual reality of presence in your life by the Holy Spirit, and He is beginning to change you, not just giving you an eternal life that you'll have someday, but even now, His life is working in you and making you different as one of His own. Now, all these things come under the banner of what we call union with Christ. 
we would say that a believer's whole knowledge of God and enjoyment of God happens through a saving bond with Jesus. And so the gospel says God became one with us in the person of Christ. God became flesh so that we could become one with him. Jesus stooped to take on our nature so that we, in effect, might have his own life and the nature of God. I'm not saying we become God, but the nature of Christ, the spirit of Christ, the transforming power of Christ begin to work in us. One of the ways the New Testament illustrates this is with a metaphor of the Christian's relationship to Christ and says that it's a marriage. The marriage illustration is there. Christ is the perfect bridegroom. He saves his imperfect bride, the church, or the individual believer. He binds himself to us. He makes vows to us. He comes and says, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will lead you. I will wash your sins. I will bring you strength in the midst of your weakness. I will be your husband. And so we believe the Christian and the New Testament teaches that the Christian is being changed day by day, very gradually. We don't see it. You know, it doesn't usually burst out in any single day so that we see it. But over time, gradually, God is changing the believer to become more and more conformed to the imprint of his own character and his own mind till that great day when we are going to be glorified and in the final day given a resurrection body that is said to be like his own glorious body. So you see this wonderful doctrine of union with Christ. As we come to the Lord's table, the ones who should come are those who really, in effect, wear the wedding ring of Christ on their souls. They know themselves to be bonded to him. They know themselves to be his new creations. They know, despite their imperfections and sins, that Christ died for them and rose for them and is doing his new work in them. If you're a person who requires the very first introduction to Jesus Christ, you've never met him, you know nothing about him, then really this table is not for you. We hope it will be. But it's not the place to have your first meeting with Christ. It is the place to come on the basis of an existing relationship and rejoice and recognize the face of the one you love and delight in him and bow before him and ask him how you can obey him more and let him show you the imperfections of your sins. You see, Paul says every Christian has participated in the death of Christ. His death was our death to the effect and consequence of our sin. And we participated in the resurrection of Christ. His resurrection was the granting of new life to us. So we're not the same anymore. We're new people. We still sin. We're still imperfect. And you better come to this table knowing that. But you come knowing that the penalty, the consequences of that, have been broken because you have participated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's an imperfect illustration, but you could think of a family reunion. Sometimes you have those this time of year. You go and meet family members from far places in the country who maybe you haven't seen for a year or or even longer. But you don't go there and say, hello, my name is Bob. 
You, know, you come and you say, hi, Charlie, haven't seen you in two years. And you pick up the great relationship that you had with Charlie or your uncle or your cousin or maybe your sister, whoever it is. And in a real sense, that's what we do when we come to the table of the Lord. Not, I hope, coming as if being absent from Christ. They see, here's where my illustration is wrong. Not being absent from Christ for a year or two years. Hopefully not absent from him even for a day. But we come and we recognize him and we say, I'm here, Lord, by your grace. I'm here thankfully knowing that you in your good favor have adopted me and changed me and given me new birth and put me in your family and how wonderful it is to bow before you and rest and hope in you. And so real communion with Christ is the foundation of the Lord's Supper. But a second point here more quickly goes on to teach us that because we do have this union with Christ, this participation in him, before we come to this table, we have something else. We also have a grand union and belonging to all the other people who come to this table equally being his, you see. It's not simply a one-on-one transaction, me and Christ. It's Christ and all his people standing around his table, and we belong to them just as we belong to him. Verse 17 says, because there is one loaf, he's speaking about the communion table, We who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one loaf. Belonging to Christ puts you in a deep solidarity with all others who know him. Belonging to Christ puts you in deep solidarity with all others who know him. Now you say, you know, there are many ways on this earth that you can belong to a society of of persons. I've never gone to a high school reunion. My 40th is already passed now, and I didn't go. And, well, there are reasons for that. It's far away, and it's on a weekend, and I can give you all kinds of excuses why I don't go. But some of you, I know, had such great experiences in your high school and with your class, and some of those friends you made are the best friends you ever made in your life, and you've gone to your 10th and your 30th and your 50th or even more. And you go and you just, you just revel in the relationships you have with people you, you really last spent time with when you were all 18 years old. Well, that's great because there are many forms of human association that aren't spiritual or, or aren't divine in any way that can give us those kinds of good bonds of friendship and neighborliness and things that we enjoy to renew. But I would argue with you the bonds that we have with other believers in Christ are not exactly on the same plane as the bonds you have with your high school class, as good as those might be. Because you see, in the church of Jesus Christ, we're not necessarily reliant on having spent many years together and having shared many, many common experiences and the same teachers, you know, and the same detention classes and the same football team and all those things. It isn't on the basis of time spent together that we have these bonds. The cement that holds us together is not shared experience or or time in one another's presence. It is the cement of a divine Lord who binds us together. I don't know if you do any camping in the summertime, but if you did, you may need to gather firewood 
And if you do gather firewood, you know you want to go out and get everything that's dry and not rotting. And you pick up branches of different size. You might get some sizable logs. You might get some smaller branches, and maybe some are pretty long and others are not so big. And you get as much as you can carry back to the campsite. And it might be a clumsy load, all kinds of branches intermingled, and it's hard to juggle them, and you drop a few on the way. But if you're gathering up that load of firewood, one way to make it a a whole lot easier to carry would be to have a simple piece of cord. And you take that cord, clothesline, or whatever, and wrap it around a couple times and tie a square knot or whatever knot you know, and boy, you can pick that up with one hand and carry the whole thing because it's become a unity. It's not a jumble. It's it's not a, a mixed amalgam of things falling apart. It's a bound together unity. And the Scripture tells us that God's grace in the gospel and our common faith, your common faith and mine, makes Christ the cord wrapped around all the different size personalities and backgrounds and places of origin and ethnic belongings and national loyalties and and language differences and all the things that that make Christians indeed a very jumbled pile of firewood. Christ is wrapped around us, tying us together and putting us in one bundle. You know the expression, blood is thicker than water. We usually use that to say something like family means more than just other kinds of relationship. Well, if I could reapply that in a different way to the blood of Christ shed for us, I would say in the context of the church, blood is thicker than water. And by that I mean All those mutually saved by the blood of one Lord Jesus Christ are truly one in even better ways than those bound together by the mere water of family relationships or high school class or working together or living in the same neighborhood or having a 50-year friendship. If I am in Christ, belonging to Him, and you are in Christ then we don't say, I am a a Christian here today. We say, we are the people of God. He's ours. And He is the one who binds us together. You might be a believer come from a far place. Nearly every Sunday we have folks from out of state in our services. Met a couple from South Carolina last week who were just in the area visiting and a sister church in South Carolina. And they stopped and gave Wonderful greetings, how glad they were to be here worshiping with us. And, and you know, there's just that common identity that Christians have. You don't really have to know a lot about each other. You come beside a brother or a sister in Christ, and it doesn't take very long to know that you share the deepest things of all, even though surface-level things of your accent because you're from Alabama or New Hampshire might be very different. Worship is a place where the people of God are bound together. We don't have to necessarily have an an instructional course to, to come into a worship sanctuary with other Christians who might do their service differently. Their music might be different. Their form of liturgy or organization might be different. But we recognize what's going on. We say, these are our people. These are the people of God, and I belong here. I want to make a suggestion to you that might startle you for a moment, but 
I believe this with absolute sincerity. Did you know that there are ghosts in this sanctuary? You say he's been on vacation too long. He's gone off his rocker. There are ghosts in this sanctuary. And I would like you to think about those ghosts on a particular time and in a particular way. And here's what I mean. When we say the Apostles' Creed together, we didn't say it in the service today, but most of the time we do. When we say that great creed that came into being in the 400s A.D., instead of just hearing 200 or 400 or at the other service 600 voices saying it, here's what I'd like you to do. Imagine the millions of voices who have said that creed of belief in Jesus Christ and belonging to Him over all those centuries since 450 or so A.D. Imagine all those reformers. Imagine all those persecuted for the gospel. Imagine those early Christians who settled our country. Imagine those who were part of this congregation when it was founded 40 years ago, who are, many of whom are now in the presence of the Lord, even up to recent time. And you know, you might get chills down your spine when you think of the phrase, for all the saints who from their labors rest, saying the creed along with you. Not ghosts of the spooky, silly kind. The saints of God those real believers who also belong to Christ, and then include in it not just people from the past who are no longer living, include in it the people in Kenya, the people in Mexico, the people in Peru, the people in Japan, the people in Germany who are lifting up the name of Christ and able to say that creed along with you. Next time we say the creed, think about that. Listen for the ghosts. We are one amazing body of people in the Lord Jesus Christ. In summary today, I want you to see these three verses of 1 Corinthians 10. It is asked us, are not the cup and the bread we receive a participation in the blood and the body of Christ? If you can say yes to that, oh yes, I know Christ died for me. I rest in what he did for me. Then you're His. And this table is open for you. And you are one, I hope, who knows that real communion with Christ is foundational to coming to His table. Communion, union with Him, happens to those who call Him their Lord. Here you'll be united with Him. You'll rejoice at what you hear about Him. You'll give Him thanks. You'll ask Him for strength to help you obey Him. And furthermore, if you share this one loaf in that true faith and that belonging to Christ, then you know that belonging to Christ puts you in deep solidarity with all others who know him. You see, you cannot, there is no Lone Ranger Christianity. There is none. The the, the New Testament knows nothing about that. If you know Christ, you recognize his body. You recognize all the other believers who know him. Luther used to say something that, that got people's attention, he said every Christian acts as a little Christ to every other Christian. So believer, today may our Lord renew you and sustain you 
as you are reunited with him whom you love and trust in at his table. And may his people surround you with tangible encouragements and strength as we lay our weaknesses before the kingly might and the great majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we are one. Our Father, help us to be so united and conscious of it We come asking forgiveness for the way you, the greatest person in our lives, have been neglected. And if one who knows you comes, having been long away like that prodigal who thought there was no place for him because he had so grievously run away, may you be ready with arms to enfold that one and to welcome him home. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.